Another episode of iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the Pause platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and today, a wonderful day in May 2021, and with nutrition as the main topic on pause, I am delighted to welcome Dr. Amy Plowman, who is the head of conservation with the Bumblebee Conservation Trust and is part of the European Nutrition Group and was at the Paint and Zoo and Wild Planet Trust for over two decades. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I've just realized your podcast is called iBuzz, which is really appropriate now for the Bumblebee Conservation Trust. We, we buzz a lot. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I'm absolutely delighted and looking forward to hearing more about these wonderful animals that, of course, are really important in themselves as little creatures and, of course, for so many aspects of uh, flourishing of people, other animals and the planet. So thank you so much for coming on today to talk about nutrition and of course about other topics as well. That's okay, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yes, very much looking forward. And could you start with a very short introduction to yourself, please? Um, very briefly, the most re relevant part really is that I, I was science officer and eventually director for conservation science for Paint and Zoo and the um, Wild Planet Trust, where I was really a largely self-taught animal nutritionist, really. Um, so for over 20 years, did a lot of zoo-based nutrition research, really trying to focus on the uh, nutrition in the real world of the zoo, rather than theoretically what, what should be good nutrition, actually what, what impact th those diets that we were thinking of and formulating have on the animals themselves. So I focused on that for, for over two decades. That sounds like a huge amount of time um, at, at Painting Zoo and our other zoos. And all that time was really heavily involved in the European um, Zoo Nutrition Group um, with lots of colleagues from throughout Europe, also linking with the American Zoo's um, Nutrition Group, uh, just to try and move forward a, a more scientific basis for, for zoo animal diets. Wonderful. Yes. And you already named such an important aspect, which, of course, is about collaborations and, you know, really working with different groups and different disciplines that all contribute to the science and practice of zoo nutrition. And can you talk a little bit about how you came to study animals and, uh, and how you ended up working uh, in the zoo? <laughs> it was all a bit of an accident, really. Um, <laughs> my, my PhD training was actually in population genetics. And when um, Paint and Zoo advertised for a, a new science officer, that's what they said they wanted to, to someone who would understand the, the processes and, and theories behind stud books and, and breeding. Um, when I got the post and, and took it up, what they really wanted, it seemed, was someone to look at animal welfare and to really get enrichment going well and to, to improve behavioral welfare. Um, and it just seemed to me that 
the biggest impact we could have on the welfare of the animals at the zoo was getting the diets right. I looked at some of the diets the animals were getting, not really knowing very much, and, and thought, this doesn't seem as though it should be right. Um, and do we know it's right? And how do we make these diets? How do we know what to feed animals? Where, where is the diet coming from? Um, who's determined it? And there seemed to be a huge amount of tradition, a huge amount of myth, a huge amount of, well, we do it like this because we always have. Um, and I started to get really quite interested then in, in how we could do it better. And it, and it just, and it still seems to me, and I'm sure uh, is right, that if you, if you don't have the right diet, the health and welfare of the animal is never going to be good. It's, it's absolutely fundamental to get that right first before we even start thinking about all the, all the behavioural things and the enclosure designs and the, the veterinary programmes. If, if they're basically not eating the right food, health and welfare is never going to be good enough. Yes, and that's such an important point. And I think also what is very interesting and, and also wonderful to hear is that, you know, like you say, over two decades ago, that seems like a very long time. But it's also really wonderful that already at the time, you know, a zoo was actually looking for somebody who wanted to really improve animal welfare and have somebody dedicated to that. Of course, people working in these facilities are dedicated to the animals, but to have somebody specific who is going to look at, you know, enrichment and behavior and so on, uh, that is such an important step forward. So that's already really wonderful. And then, of course, diets, um, I don't know, it's of course, there's so much there. And you also said you don't have necessarily at the time the specific training for it, but really also just asking these all these different questions about you know, what should these animals be eating and what are they eating? And I'm also not a zoo nutritionist at all, but coming from a marine back mammal background and mainly, you know, obviously working with fish, um, we still had a lot of questions about where the fish came from and how it was thawed. And, you know, some did it in water and others with air and all those different things. But we didn't really feed any, yeah, different, different things than they would eat in the wild to them. Uh, perhaps different types of fish, but not necessarily different sorts of, you know, uh, food items, which when I started working in, in zoos, uh, I, I would see yogurt and all kinds of other things. And I was always wondering about that. And so, you know, to hear you talk about these sorts of questions and really focusing on the diet of the animal as fundamental to their well-being is, is really uh, really important. And so could you talk a little bit more about, you know, your interest, you know, in nutrition and in what sort of specific things did you do at the time when you started this program? Well, I, I, one of our very first things we did was um, look at the diet of our colobus monkeys. Um, they had terrible dental issues, um, really, really poor teeth. Um, we were having to remove teeth having to do catch-ups on a really frequent basis to to do dental inspections and and try and, and give them some treatment if we could or just remove teeth if we couldn't and that just didn't seem right um so i in my very naive not really knowing much about nutrition way i just sort of, well let's have a look at the diets and you know sugar we know sugar is bad for teeth we know that from people um, presumably it's all the same sort of thing teeth are more or less the same um, between uh, humans and non-human primates and so we looked at the diet we we removed sugary fruit 
from the diet um, gave them a loads more uh, green leafy material and browse um, because they are leaf eaters. Um, and and the, the teeth problems just vanished. It was almost overnight that, that we never again had to give them dental treatment. And, you, and I started thinking, well, this is, I mean, this seems easy. <laughs> so nutrition is easy. <laughs> um, so we, we sort of developed from there. And I, I read up and, and learned a lot more about sugar, particularly um, um, the, the relative amounts in, of carbohydrates that should be in diets. Um, and wild animals have huge amounts more fiber generally. Herbivorous animals all have much more fiber in their diets in the wild than we give them in zoos. It's quite hard to find um, dietary items that have that much fiber in them really. Um, and so most of my work then stemmed from that, that sugar, starch and fiber sort of carbohydrate ratios and learning a bit more about the impacts that those have in different types of animals. Um, and going from there. But uh, uh, very early on, I went to the first European Nutrition Group conference, which was in Rotterdam. And that was just amazing. I learned so much and, and got so fired up and enthused about, about how much we could improve the diets just with some really simple stuff. Um, and that was great. So meeting all those European colleagues who who are still around and, and still in touch with was, was brilliant and, uh, and really important to go and start to learn from them and learn where I should be looking for, for information. Um, I, I guess my other first thing was with Dikers as well, actually, with one of our conservation projects in um, Zimbabwe. We had a, a, a small field station with a collection of Dikers, small antelope, who were also traditionally regarded as, as frugivores. They eat a lot of fruit. They particularly follow primates around the forest. And when primates drop fruit down, the ground um the daiku can eat them um and that was exactly the same principle with them too sugary the diets we give them because we think they eat fruit were too sugary and, and changing that into a more uh, fiber-based diet was really important for them as well um and that was exciting really to, to show the principles working across some really quite different species yes and before i have some other questions also on that could you talk a little about for those, uh, including you know myself, with not all the background, like when you say sugar or starch, um, you know what what do you mean by that? Um, well, carbohydrates is a, a is a really wide, broad category of nutrient, um, and there are lots of different types. So, and there are very much good positive carbohydrates that are really needed, which are all the fibers. So for herbivores, they're, they're the structural um, carbohydrates that you find in the plant cell walls. So cellulose and hemicellulose and lignin, and they are very um, difficult to digest and vertebrates um, in order to digest them need gut microbes. So it's the gut microbes that digest the fiber. Um, whereas sugar and starch are carbohydrates, but they're very simple, small molecules that so they're very easily digested um, just by normal chemical digestion. Um, so they are a, a really good energy source. So for high energy animals, um, the, the sugars and starches will give high energy, but they'll give it in fast pulses and it doesn't last long. Um, so 
it doesn't give them a satiation. It doesn't give a, a sort of a, a feeling of fullness. So animals will get hungry again very quickly, um, which can lead to problems of overeating and obesity if they're, if they're fed too much. But particularly with ruminants who have, and, and other herbivores who have um, large areas of their guts that are adapted to fiber digestion. So they have big um, um, fermentation chambers somewhere in the gut, either in the stomach like ruminants or in the hindgut. They're adapted to digesting that fiber. And if you give them a load of the sugars and starches instead, the, the fermentation is explosive. It, it, and it will cause them huge amounts of, of indigestion type pain because they'll be producing volatile fatty acids which is what fermentation produces at a rate that is far quicker than they can absorb. Um, so the, the fermentation chamber becomes quite acidic um, and is painful. And with the dikers, they had this in dikers in American zoos had this syndrome they called slosh belly, because as they, as they moved around, you can hear their stomachs just sort of sloshing away with these sort of gases bubbling and um, really uncomfortable. And that will, reduce their um, intake of food which can contribute to wasting syndromes that you'll see in certain animals um, that even if you give them foods they really like they they won't eat enough of them because they're they're just getting malabsorption and and real acid, um, room and acidosis and and be very uncomfortable so so that balance that carbohydrate balance of the the fibrous cellulose hemicellulose that needs microbial digestion versus the sugar and starches which are easily digested is really really important to get right yes and that's it's really important also to get that background uh, from people like you and other experts so that we understand also this whole cascade of you know uh, symptoms and and afflictions that animals uh, might suffer from so and it's really interesting and important to hear about that and also you talked about, you know, some of the changes that you could make by using green leaf and more fibrous foods. Can you also talk a little bit, and you talked about, you know, the digestins and Zimbabwe. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between, say, wild, you know, uh, foods, if you like, and cultivated foods and, the, and, for example, the sugar amounts? Yeah, this is really important. Uh, I think this is a big mistake that... Um, we've made in zoos for a long time and we're getting much better at it but but we still don't always think about it in that foods that are cultivated for human consumption are grown and have been bred for thousands of years in many cases for us to actually like them and this is particularly important with with fruits which we like to have lovely juicy sweet fruits we don't like to be spending a lot of time chewing fibrous material in our fruit um, but it's also true of things like nuts and seeds and and things like that so a, you know a, a pumpkin seed is nothing like a seed that seed eating birds for instance would eat in the wild it's just it's much bigger it's much fuller of of nice fats and it um so we change we change the plants that we grow for our consumption to suit what we like um, in the wild, animals that are free living don't have access to those sorts of foods. They, they scrabble around getting whatever they, they can. And generally it is 
what nutritionists, what animal nutritionists would call really poor quality. It's full of fiber, which um, is, is uh, difficult for them to digest. Protein is usually quite high um, and protein in our fruits and, and other products that we produce for ourselves actually can be very low compared with wild foods, but fats tend to be much higher. So in the wild, fats will be at a much lower level, but there'll be a, a bigger variety of them. The fatty acids, um, it's really important to have certain types of them um, in the right ratios. And in our, in our human cultivated foods, that's very difficult to achieve, particularly with the omega-3s. I'm sure people know about the omega-3s, which is the ones you get a lot of in cod liver oil and in linseed, but virtually nothing else that humans eat. Um, so it's really important to get, to get that balance right. And in cultivated foods, it's very difficult with, with those types of fats. So it's mainly we make them too fatty altogether. We make them too sugary. We reduce protein levels in quite a lot of our foods that we like to eat in terms of the fruit and the vegetables. And, and they are just not like foods that animals get access to in, in free living situations. Yes, that's, it's amazing also just the complexity of this and then the, you know, how hard it also is to actually, you know, provide good nutrition for animals in our care because of course we don't have access to, you know, a lot of these wild grown, um, yeah. No, we don't. We, we're very limited in, in, in access, particularly for browsers. That's, you know, every single time we see nutritionists get together, browse is a massive topic of conversation. It's how can, how can we get more browse? How can we do browse silage to get us over the winter? Can we freeze browse? Do animals still like it if it's frozen? Is the nutritional quality of it still as good if you use silage or if you freeze? And, you know, a, but how much freezer space do you need to feed a herd of giraffes frozen browse all over winter it's a massive topic of conversation that we we've never really found the solution to but we know that browse is so important for browsing animals and in in most european zoos where browse availability is very seasonal it's really almost impossible to get enough of it um and that, and that you know that's just the extreme example but yeah we're very limited in different types of foods that we can get access to in an economical way and we can store in a way that that doesn't destroy their nutrients it's yeah it's quite a challenge yes yeah yeah i can hear that and you mentioned um you know bad teeth and uh, the slosh belly uh, you also mentioned obesity what are some of the you know afflictions or symptoms or diseases that animals can suffer from uh, when you know they don't get the right nutrition well, the, by far the most common nutritional disorder in zoo animals is obesity, massively by a long way. And, and there are different factors at play with that. Um, obviously animals in zoos tend to be less active than they would in the wild. Uh, so they need less energy. Um, it's about providing them with sometimes the wrong food. Um, it's keepers. And animal carers naturally wanting to give animals food because animals like food, they like to eat. And, and I think it's a human tendency to feed them a bit too much. Um, I mean, we have a massive obesity problem with companion animals as well because they just get fed too much. Um, it's about feeding them the wrong things. So feeding them the sugary food and the fatty food that, that we've talked about. 
Um, and, and I think quite a lot of the time, just not really knowing what the animals should look like. I mean, meerkats is a, a classic example. When you see wild meerkats, they are skinny little things, really thin. And yet most meerkats in zoos are, you know, pretty round and podgy. And, and I think it's just because we get so used to seeing them like that, that if we get them to the right way, we're all going, oh my God, they're a bit thin. Are they all right? We should feed them a bit more. Um, so, I, so I think it is quite difficult to not overfeed animals in many cases. I'm just trying to think of some other common disorders. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's ones that people know about and people understand like um, metabolic bone diseases because the calcium and phosphorus ratios aren't right and things like that. And the, the, those individual micronutrient issues are very, very similar to the domestic animals we know a lot about. Um, and, and they shouldn't happen. We should know enough to be able to get our calcium and phosphorus ratios right. But sometimes your diet is perfect and your diet is great and it, be, it would be brilliant, but the animals just don't eat it as you give it to them. Um, so what they actually eat is not right, even though what you're giving them is right. And that, that's another thing that we need to pay a bit more attention to. Yes, I think that's always so. Of course, we have all, you know, us caring for animals, and uh, whether it's primates or, you know, when we give the food, you know, we've maybe spent a lot of time, like you said, balancing it all out and getting all everything right. And then they'll, you know, go over and only select to eat some of these things. And, uh, and uh, or, you know, depending on the social hierarchy of animals, some will eat, you know, more of this or less of that, depending on their preference. So, um, and as you mentioned, right, this importance of looking at behavior and enrichment and, maybe training, yep. what are some of the other tools that we can then use to get animals to actually eat what they need to eat and not what they would <laughs> like to eat? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think um, giving, giving animals choice, there's, there's a little bit of a, of a myth um, in that animals have some sort of nutritional wisdom. And if you give them a choice, they'll eat what's good for them, which is nonsense. <laughs> um, they're like children. If you give them a choice, they'll eat the sweets. Uh, um, so there's a sort of a tendency that people like to give them choice. They like to give them a huge range of different things and they think variety is good, but actually you don't need variety and choice in every meal that you feed to an animal. You can give them variety over a, you know, over a fortnight, but at each meal, just give them one thing and then they've got no choice. They have to eat that thing and they'll eat it in the right proportions and because there's lots of that thing, you might get less, less food aggression over it. You might get dominant animals not eating so much of it. Um, and, and you can and try, and, try and get the right, the right diet that way by not giving them so many different things every meal. Um, yes, feed, absolutely. Yeah, feeding the things they don't like very much first thing in the morning when they're more hungry. For, for example, just being a bit more giving a bit more thought to how you actually provide the food and in what order and at what times to actually make sure they do eat the full balance of the diet that you want them to. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that's probably the same also for, you know, us adults where we could be gravitating towards the things we like a lot rather than maybe what is healthy for us. And, uh, and I also think, you know, you bring up an important point there, this, this aspect of, um, you know, really thinking about when do we feed what and how and 
and also, you know, even considering food waste, you know, just because of many of the things they leave behind because they're not eating it, they're selective. And I guess also this, if you have a wide variety of different things, but you feed that every day, uh, then also, you know, there's not necessarily a lot of difference because it's always that wide variety every day. So I think you bring up so many uh, important points in how we could, you know, be looking at establishing not only the diets, but also how do we, um, you know, present it to the animals and when we present it to the animals. And, and also, you know, acknowledging the fact that in the wild, a lot of animals don't necessarily have a wide variety of things all the time. It's very seasonal dependent on which fruits and so on. And, um, and sometimes I think we also lose sight of that, um, you know, so that might also be something to really think about. Yeah, I, I think so. I think, um, a, a lot of people have said to me over the years that variety is really important and I'm thinking well actually I, I don't know there's much really hard evidence that variety is important um, I suspect that it probably is but variety every day isn't important variety over a whole year yeah that's probably important but we don't need to give them you know 20 different items every day I don't think there's any evidence that that's important but you know, and they think it's important um, behaviourally for the animals. Oh, the animals like to have variety. <laughs> well, I don't know. Do we know that? Do we know that? I don't know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many things that, you know, when we, when we, of course, as you know, choice and control are really hot words in animal yeah. welfare. And, you know, this idea of obviously complexity and giving choices, uh, variety allows for choices. This kind of, I guess, how maybe this works in our heads, but yeah, for a lot of these, we don't really have any evidence for it, or we actually have evidence to the contrary that it might be, you know, it's mango season and it's mangoes all the way. And that's what you eat until something else comes in bloom or gets, uh, has that availability in the wild. So um, yeah, so it's really interesting to actually pause, like you say, and step back and have a good think about what we do and, and how we do this. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and before we actually move on to other questions, I was wondering about if you could shed some light on, you know, people might wonder, why is it that like the carnivores, you know, often are actually need to eat, uh, is that true that they need to eat the intestines of the herbivores? Uh, what, what is the, the thought about uh, around that? Um, I, I, they probably need some of the nutrients that in the wild they could only get from eating the intestines so for instance vitamin a is stored in uh, livers in in vertebrates um, and if you don't eat the liver then there's really no other source of vitamin a so if you only feed carnivores muscle meat that will be deficient in vitamin a but you can supplement it with vitamin a if you if you don't want them to eat livers um, and I suspect that in the wild they are getting other nutrients. They might be getting nutrients directly from undigested food in the intestines. Um, I mean, bones, calcium is all in the bones. So if you're not feeding them bones, they won't be getting calcium. And that's why, you, you know, mostly we supplement our carnivore diets. So there will be things that they will be getting from those guts and the gut contents. Uh, that they won't get if you just feed them muscle meat or, or 
even meet on on joints but you can replace those nutrients if you know what they are with with supplements um because it's quite difficult to feed intestines <laughs> Um, yes yes absolutely but i think it's so important to talk about that and also like you talk about uh, behavior or, or social life of animals and you know how we feed animals or how we feed uh, carnivores or you know primates uh, and also what does it you know do to the the morphology you know the development of animals when they are you know eating just muscle meat, for example, instead of bones or carcass feeding. And could you uh, tell us a little bit more? Yes, about well, I'm, I'm not, I, I try, I'm struggling to remember what the differences actually are, but that there is evidence um, that the, the skulls of large carnivores particularly do develop differently if they're not having whole carcass feeds, if they're not getting those, um, having to use their jaw muscles to, to be tearing off skin and, and pulling apart um you know bones and things um so there is evidence that their their skeletal and their, their muscle development does change um whether that matters i don't really know i mean i would be more concerned about cognitive changes that they don't because they're not using all those um actual sort of behavioral skills and and learning how to hunt and things that the I suspect the cognitive changes are more important in terms of welfare, but I think it is significant if there are musculoskeletal changes that even if we don't know how much that matters, we should probably try to avoid it because it's likely to be a bad thing rather than a good thing. Um, yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, there's just so many things to think about, right? When we're talking about nutrition and behavior and the development yep. of animals, it really is just this cascade of different aspects and it all comes down to these diets that you mentioned at the very beginning and um you know just looking at your like research gate profile and other aspects you have done a lot of work um in in the zoo community and also universities uh, could you talk a little bit about that before we dive a little bit deeper in the specifics of zoo nutrition um that's i'm I feel very lucky actually that I do have done so much different research so nutrition is is the thing that I have sort of been most involved in and developed um, more than anything else but working in the zoo environment you get you get the opportunity to be involved in all sorts of other things I think I think my my name is on papers about thermal imaging and and using thermal cameras to look for joint inflammation and that sort of thing um, uh, I was also head of the um, the conservation program, so I've done loads of field work as well, and collaborated with um, both my own colleagues within the zoo and and our field workers and university workers on the stuff in the field, looking at populations of various species, um, which is it, it's all amazing being able to do do all those sorts of things. And so many different things. I'm probably forgetting something really important that I really enjoyed, and now I can't remember because um, 20 years of really varied, varied and fun research and conservation work is um, is is great. Um, Absolutely. We'll just uh, you know put a link to your research gate profile so people can have a look if they were like, oh, 
thermal cameras and inflammation, what is that about? They can, yeah. they can look up the papers and look up all the work that you have done. And, um, you know, you already mentioned you were working at, at Peyton Zoo and um, it's now the Wild Planet Trust. Can you talk on how did you get that job? How did you come to work there? And um, yeah, what are some of the specifics? Uh, I, I, I think I was just really lucky. So um, as, as I said, my PhD was in population genetics um, with plants as my um, main uh, study organism. Um, I had done a little bit on flatworms as well, bizarrely, because they have some similar genetics going on. Um, and I, I, did, I saw the job advertised and they said they wanted a population geneticist. And I thought, oh, I fancy working in a zoo. That seems like a really good thing. Um, so I just applied and luckily was given the job. Um, and I think that's it, I just don't think it would work like that anymore for people. People trying to get jobs as as researchers in zoos now, it's so much harder for them. And, you know, the zoos would be looking for evidence that it's what you've always wanted to do. <laughs> you know, they will be looking about whether you, um, you know, did you do your undergraduate project? Was that zoo based? Have you done voluntary work? Have you, you know, tried to get involved somehow um, because the competition is is so great for, for those few jobs that there are. Um, so I think I was very, very lucky. Um, you know, I ne it was never anything I set out to do. I just saw the job and thought, that sounds like a great job. I'll apply for it. <laughs> Wonderful. And can you talk a little bit about like the, the teams that you developed there and, the, you know, the different types of work or people and expertise that were working with you in this in this domain? Yeah. Um, when I when I first got the job, the director at the time said to me, you, you know, it's always it'll always just be you. We, we can't afford to um, employ any more in, in the science team. <laughs> and after about five years, I had lots of people working for me because I think people, we just sort of saw the value of it. So I started off very quickly doing a, a year long placement scheme for university undergraduates. Um, I'd be, I'm always very grateful to the first batch I had because they were so good and, and they did so well that we just thought, no, this is great. We'll go, we'll get some more. And so for, you know, 20 odd years, we had between about four and eight undergraduates coming for a, a full year. Um, and they were the people that did the bulk of the, the actual research work. They're the people that, that did the data collection, that worked with the keepers, loads of enrichment projects in the early years, but also some of the nutrition stuff, getting the diet data, um, doing all the background research to, to look at what we should be doing um and that that was great um and then my first member of staff was actually Kirsten Pullen who then later went on to be director of Biasa and now is back at back at Paynton again um I thought a really cunning way of getting a member of staff quite quite inexpensively was to make it a part-time job and fund a, a PhD in the other half of the time and that was a model that worked really well for for lots of staff members so probably about seven or eight people over the years came on that sort of model where they had a part-time job and then we funded their PhD. Um, Kirsten did hers on bachelor gorilla groups. Um, we had, uh, Natasha did it on uh, a meadow thistle. So that was a kind of a, 
a, a practical conservation thing in the in the field that was really varied. Andy came and did his on the dikers. So he did a lot of field work in Tanzania for his, looking at gene flow through fragmented populations. Uh, we had others, Kathy and Holly, and um, doing primate-based, zoo-based primate research. Um, so over the years, built up really good science and conservation team with a, with a really wide range of skills. And possibly, if I was starting all over again, I would have gone for a wider range of skills because we became pretty heavy on primate behavioural experts and that maybe I should have been a bit more strategic back in the beginning and thought, no, actually, I, I do want a, a nutrition PhD, for instance, which we got eventually through Francis Cabana, who I'm sure people will also have heard of. Um, he, he trained up a lot of the, his nutrition stuff through his master's with us and then through an internship with us um, and then got his PhD at Oxford Brooks on slow loris nutrition. So that, that was great. So I, it, it was just, it was scraping together bits of money wherever I could to appoint a load of really, really good, brilliant people who struggled with the bits of money that I was able to get for them because it was not, it's not easy doing a part-time PhD on a part-time salary, not easy at all. Um, but all those people, I mean, really, really brilliant, really dedicated and really good at what they did and supervising whilst doing that, supervising the undergrads on their placement years um, was how we really developed that science and conservation team, really. Amazing. That sounds really great. And uh, I really like how, you know, even though maybe hindsight, hindsight is always easy, right? Yeah. You know, <laughs> but at the time, you know, you did what you what you could and it actually grew, right? Except for in, you always be by yourself. Uh, well, that yeah. was something no. that changed. <laughs> yeah, and this wonderful mix of research in the wild and research at the at the zoo and also taking information from, you know, the wild into the zoo. Uh, which you already mentioned. And of course, you know, you, you, you talked about the challenges of zoo nutrition uh, a little bit, and then of course, research in the field and learning from the wild and maybe bringing some of that uh, back into the zoo. Uh, could you talk a little bit about also maybe the history of, of zoo nutrition, kind of maybe some of the first things that people did. And, you know, obviously now we have all kinds of um, working groups or nutrition groups, but kind of how, how, what are some of the earliest records on this? Oh, now you're challenging my memory. Um, <laughs> there were some really, some really very early Z nutritionists um, who were who were trying to develop um, some more standardized diets before, you know, pelleted, commercially available diets were invented really. They were, they were trying to, to come up with formulas based on ingredients that they could, they could get. Um, but for a large part of zoo history, right up until the 80s and 90s, diets were based on domestic animal diets. So if you had a, a zebra, you'd feed it what you think you should feed a horse. Um, and that's an obvious one rhinos okay you feed them like horses as well because that's their nearest relative um you know big cats you'd feed like a domestic cat um and and you know most of the ruminants antelopes and things like that you'd use a, a horse or a sheep or a goat model 
And that works reasonably well, except for then there are things like anteaters where there's no domestic model at all and you're really just guessing. Um, and I think some, some zoos did it really well, and it, but it was more of an art. It was, well, we'll tweak a little bit here and there and the animal looks a bit peaky today, so I'll tweak a little bit of that. But, but it, was a, it was an art and it was very individual and, and some people were very, very good at it and some people really weren't. And there wasn't really a way to pass on that skill other than through, you know, 30 years of experience. So it was during the 1990s really that the, the zoo nutrition groups were formed in, in, in the States and in Europe to try and get people to get together and try and do it in a much more scientific way, to try and understand, to share information, to say, look, this is what we feed and these, these are the issues that we have had, or this is what we feed and actually we don't have any issues at all. They, the animals are wonderfully healthy and they breed really well. And to actually compare those diets and look at actually the nutrients within the diets, because not just comparing them for, oh, well, you, you use so much fruit and so much vegetables and so much pellet, um, but actually saying, well, you've got 20% protein and 40% fiber, and to look at it on a nutrient basis so that we can actually then really work out why some of those diets work and why some of the diets don't work really. Um, I was, when you when you meet people from a, a non-zoo background that know a bit about animal nutrition, they are so surprised that we don't have a standard diet. So for species A, this is the diet you should feed them in zoos. And they're like, why, why doesn't that happen? Why doesn't that exist? Because it would happen for livestock. Um, and it doesn't because because of all the challenges we've we've already talked about the the availability of ingredients the the preferences of the animals the the cost of the ingredients sometimes as well some zoos can afford to do that and others really can't um, but they are shocked they're really surprised that we don't have these standard diets for this is what you should feed species A or species B um, and they find that quite surprising so it is. It's about getting towards that, but rather than prescribing the ingredients, we prescribe the nutrient levels, saying that this species must have X percent protein, X percent fats and things like that. It's getting towards that and, and then being able to formulate a diet that meets those nutrient requirements. Yes. And I think, and, you know, some of the some zoos and, uh, and aquariums have also, you know, they have different reasons for having certain species or not having certain species and yeah. I've heard of facilities that you know not on the basis of behavior or other but on the basis of diet uh, have decided not to have certain species because they didn't feel they could do um, could do it right or they couldn't afford to do it um, so yeah it's a, yeah, I think, a very big impact of course diets yeah and I would like more more season aquariums to be considering can we feed these animals the right diet before they decide to take take that species on? Um, because, because it is really difficult. So, you know, particularly very large browsing animals where you can't get enough browse, is it right to have them? Uh, it's a question I think we should be asking a little bit more often. Yeah, absolutely. And you talked about pelleted diets. And of course we could do a whole podcast on pelleted diet. <laughs> we could. <laughs> but briefly, could you say some of the pros and the cons, obviously, you know, the nutrition part, um, the, the nutrients uh, balances and so, but some of the pros and cons of pellet diets? 
Okay. Um, Briefly, yeah. Do, do you know it's been it's been amazing over the last twenty or so years how how much better the commercially available diets are, and, and I think that's been something that's been really pleasing that the the specialist zoo diet companies have been getting on board with with the the zoo nutritionists and really making sure that they're they're making diets that we actually need and and want and and are good. So the the pros of using it a pelleted or a commercial feed is that it will be formulated with all the right micronutrients so all the right vitamins and minerals will be there and therefore it's quite easy to if you use them as a basis of say 20% of the of the energy of the diet is coming from a commercial feed that's been properly formulated and the rest of your diet is is the stuff that the animals like to eat and it gives them behavioral opportunities then you're going to be pretty safe that you're not going to have major um, nutritional disorders because of that, that commercial feed. The disadvantages of it is that they're often, they're often quite energy dense. So you don't need very much of it. So you could feed a complete feed to an animal and it can eat it in, in 20 minutes. Whereas in the wild, it was spent all day foraging. So you've then got a big behavioral vacuum of what's what's the animal going to do all day? It doesn't need any more nutrition because we've given it a complete feed and, and that's it. So it, it, they also don't give the animal opportunities to use their natural feeding behavior. So we're back to the, you know, the carnivores that don't get the chance to rip flesh and bone apart. You know, are they they're not using physically using their bodies the way they would? Um, does that cause them problems for welfare? yes probably in many cases um so that's their disadvantage really um but it's very difficult to formulate a completely nutritional nutritionally perfect diet without using some form of commercial feed that's being pre preloaded with the right minerals and, and vitamins so that's their that's their big advantage really so mo most of the diets i've ever formulated will use a bit of a mix they'll have a commercial appellated feed in there somewhere um, and then supplemented with the other stuff that the animal can really use its right behavior to to eat yes absolutely it's so important to look at all these aspects uh, because yeah you want and the diet to be good but you also like you say don't want the animals uh just like you know maybe developing other undesired behaviors uh yeah. now because they have nothing to do all day and um um, or might not, you know, engage in certain social behaviors because of the way we feed and so on and so on. Yeah, it's just so uh, complex altogether. And, um, you know, you have, like I already mentioned, so many different types of research um, papers. You know, you have um, papers on obesity and iron storage and aggression and self-directed behaviors. You have a few different papers on different topics. And uh, could you talk a little bit about the research and some of your findings? Yeah, I think I think the thing that was became most interesting for me is the effect of um, nutrition on animal behavior, um, which we didn't really we didn't really expect that right back at the beginning. We didn't think that when we took fruit out of the colobus monkey diets, that that would change behavior in any way. Um, but the more we did that with primate diets, the more we started to see that perhaps behavior was changing a bit. And when I started to talk about it at various conferences and recommend fruit-free diets for primates because of the 
aspects of weight management that were so much better and um, feces um, condition um, it, it was was much improved dentition was much improved uh, I started talking about that and people started changing their diets and then they would get back to me and said look we did this and their behavior was amazing it, it really improved so um, anecdotally someone got back to me and said well in our lemurs we took fruit out of our lemur diets and instead of the vet having to come and treat fight wounds at least once once a week the vet has not been to treat a fight wound for the last six months and I only really knew this because my manager thought I must be hiding the fact that the lemurs were fighting because I hadn't called the vet but actually they just went fighting since we took fruit out of the diet and there were cases of individual animals who used to do a lot of um, hair plucking or rubbing themselves against bits of their enclosure had stopped they'd taken fruit out of the diet and that had just stopped and now the hair was growing back and it was looking beautiful and I was thinking well maybe there's something in this so uh, we did a lot more when we started to um, to look at other species in Painton and in Newquay which is our sister zoo down in Cornwall uh, when we started taking fruit out of the diets of, of some of the species we hadn't done yet, we started recording their behaviour and actually trying to get good evidence to support these anecdotal stories that other people were telling me. And we did find that behaviour was, in some cases, quite drastically affected by just removing sugary stuff from the diet. So we did find reductions in aggression, particularly food-related aggression, we found a reduction in stereotypical behaviours and other abnormal behaviours that some individuals were doing, like particularly being very obsessed with certain bits of their enclosure and, and, and not really using the rest of it. Um, Francis did a lot of this work with, with the zoos he's worked with as well, and he started seeing things in you know reduced um, regurgitation and re-ingestion by some ape species. Uh, so we did start to get a lot more evidence of improvements in behaviour just by removing sugary items from, from primate diets. And, and I think that that was really kind of the most interesting thing for me. So we, we carried on doing that across loads and loads of species and we found it from, you know, lorises right up to gorillas. Um, not, not always. Some species much, much more greatly affected than others um, but generally behavior was better um, when fruit was removed from their diets so that's I think was a total revelation for me really that's not something I ever expected to to happen um, and I think we're still not entirely sure exactly why it happens but it it generally does seem to be a really real thing Yes, and you also mentioned uh, stereotypies. And uh, can you talk a little about the the uh, dietary fiber and the uh, feeding, rumination, and oral stereotypies in giraffes? Yes. Now this was an interesting thing as well. So um, we had at the time at Paynton, we had we only had two giraffe. Um, one was a, a very old female. Um, who spent a huge amount of time doing oral stereotypies, licking, licking bits of the enclosure, tongue rolling, licking around her face. Um, um, but she was very old and all the keepers would say to me, well, she's always going to do that. We're never going to stop her doing that. It's totally ingrained. You know, you won't, you won't stop. Um, 
And they had tried a lot of things like, you know, trying to provide as much browse as possible, but also, you know, these sort of maze, food mazes where they have to use their tongues and, th and things like that. And it wasn't really making any difference. So we looked in with one of the placement students, one of our year long placement students, we looked into uh, rumination and what, you know, what, what happens during rumination and we you know discovered that in ruminants the the brain waves that they have during rumination are very similar to sleep and we're thinking well you know maybe this is a a, a behavioral thing because they're not getting enough sleep um, or rumination um there's also a, a rumen acidosis thing so i think quite a lot of the oral in giraffes is because they're trying to produce saliva which reduces the acids which are in the rumen because we're giving them too much sugary stuff. Um, so we tried giving them more fiber. So we gave them some more really coarse meadow hay, which actually isn't very good for giraffes. So I don't recommend that they should have lucerne hay, but we wanted to really up the fiber content of the diet. And the easiest way of doing that was to give them this really, um, really poor quality grass hay, um, which was mostly fiber. And that did, almost reduced that female draft's um, stereotypy down to nothing. So it didn't increase feeding time. They spent the same amount of time feeding, but they spent a much more time actually ruminating. So being having to regurgitate and chew, and chew the cud much more because of the, the, the added fiber in the diet. And that really reduced the oral stereotypy amount, even in that female giraffe who the keeper swore to me would always do that that I'd never be able to change that at all um, and I think that really got us thinking that was another thing that got us thinking about the importance of fiber in the diet and, and sugar and I think you know giraffes still suffer from a lot of oral stereotypy don't they um, and I think it's getting that balance between the actual nutri nutrient content of the diet's right as well as giving them those lovely brows and thorny things to, to make use of their tongue. And um, it's a combination of doing those things, I think, to, to if we really want to minimize the, the oral stereotypy for, for giraffes, I think. Yes. And I think as I'm thinking now, listening to you across this podcast and this, you know, when you mentioned variety and this choice and control and the variety across time, uh, rather than, you know, on a daily basis, but really looking uh, on a larger timescale. Um, and, and perhaps also this idea of, you know, the food all needs to be really good and rich and uh, rather than poor, you know, mm. poor quality food um, kind of maybe intuitively be like, well, that can't be a good thing. But, um, you know, it's, in the sense that it's necessary for you know the behaviors to stay um, across time because you know obviously animals need to um, spend more time either working with the food or digesting the food and um, and it's all those types of things I think that are interesting to think about like how do some of our the ways that we think about the animals or what we should be doing for animals influence the decisions we make um, rather think, than yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I think there has been a, a real problem over the years that, that is getting better. I think now we're now we're understanding more and we've got more opportunities for training of, of people in zoos that um, diet quality is is the language around it is very difficult. So 
most animal nutritionists are trained in um, livestock nutrition. So, you know, sheep and cows and pigs and, and that sort of thing. Where, where to them, a good quality diet is something that's going to provide really rich nutrients, really high protein, really high energy, something that's going to make those animals grow as rapidly as possible in order to, to produce as much of whatever it is they're producing, meat or milk or, or whatever, as quickly as possible. And that's a good quality diet, high quality diet, and that's what they call it. And if you go to someone in a zoo and say, this is a really high quality diet, it's, it's really good. Everyone in zoos is going to think, oh, great, that means it's going to be good for my animal. And that's not the same because most of our zoo animals have what an animal nutritionist would think was a really, really poor quality diet, really poor quality. Masses of fibre, which is a, a, a growth limiting thing in, in the domestic nutrition world. Masses of plant secondary compounds, which also growth limiting. Um, uh, no, yeah, low energy just poor quality really poor quality and most animals in the wild go through a season whether it's the dry season or the cold season or whatever it is where they've got virtually no food at all um so stacking them full of a really high quality you know livestock based diet is is really not going to be good for them yes yes and i think also it's important one of the things that i'm really interested in is this um looking at the sis the systems that are related to our zoo and aquarium community or animal care communities in general so whether it's uh legislation and you know all the other aspects revolving also around education and the symptoms and so where are you know, in what way are the systems causing the symptoms that we have to deal with in animal welfare? And like you mentioned education, of course, you know, like with many things in our community, we've seen such a growth in how we approach things and what we would like, what background people we would like them to have. So we are hiring people that have a zoology or a biology background or psychology, like I'm a psychologist by training, but, um, but then actually this whole need for continuous personal development and really looking at, okay, so what is it that we now need to know that is very specific to our work um, rather than, you know, maybe taking things that, I mean, it's okay, of course, and super important to look at from an interdisciplinary approach. What are other animal care and welfare fields doing and what can we learn from there or what can we adapt and so on? But uh, like you say, taking something straight over and using it um, is probably not uh, a good idea. So uh, without that inquiry or, you know, like you mentioned earlier, stepping back and having a good deep think about it. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's great that we are now becoming more and more aware of all these uh, aspects and, uh, and how we can change them. Also, because as you already mentioned, they have such a cascade of consequences in the behavior and in other domains. So um, yeah. And you mentioned some, some breakthroughs in the field as in you know solutions found with regards to dental problems. Do you have in conclusion of this uh, podcast, perhaps um, some other breakthroughs that you um, have been part of or know of that you would want to share with us? Um, I, I'm, I'm just, I, I, th I think the browse breakthroughs are really important. Every time someone finds a way of making browse silage better or, or browse freezing better, I think that that is 
they are going to be real breakthroughs. I think there's some really interesting stuff with carnivore nutrition that's been coming out in recent years, which is absolutely nothing to do with me at all. I, I can't claim to know anything about that really, but the discovery that that carnivores have fiber digestion, which, which has always been thought just to be the pure reserve of, of herbivores and things on the microbiome. So the, the constitution of, of the gut bacteria, there's some really interesting things coming, coming out of that. And I think we will have breakthroughs that are gonna be massively important for animal welfare in understanding what's happening to the, the gut microbiomes. Um, you know, there's, there's quite a lot of evidence that primates in zoos in the West have microbiomes that are more similar to humans than they are to the, the same species uh, in the wild because we are feeding them more similar foods and there's they're generally depleted the diversity of those microbiomes is depleted and that there's quite a lot of evidence that depleted microbiomes lead to lots of diseases that you wouldn't associate with being nutritional diseases but um, because they affect immune system they affect um, in humans mental health so you'd think that you know some sort of behavioral aspects in in non-humans um, and we've got loads to learn about the microbiomes and I think we're only at the beginning of it but we've already made some really interesting interesting discoveries about about what microbiomes might be affecting the health of our animals. Yes, wonderful. And you, you keep saying we and obviously, obviously different groups and other people. Um, can you talk to the importance of, of collaboration and what are some of the, you know, people might wonder what are some of these uh, professions or needs that is that are important to really looking at, at zoo nutrition or nutrition in, in general? Yeah, I do keep saying we, don't we? And I'm, I'm not even really doing much myself at the moment, but I do feel that um, in, in Zoo Nutrition, we are a really good community, really good, helpful community that, that like to work together because it, it's really important that we have, we have the academics and there are many of them in the, in the European Nutrition Group who, um, who don't work in zoos at all, but, but do their research based on zoo animals. And that's brilliant. And they're, they're so good and helpful. Um, it's really important to have them. They are nutritionists or sometimes vet veterinary experts. We have the zoo-based people um, and we have the feed companies. The feed companies are really getting involved and really embracing uh, what we're learning and trying to make their commercially available feeds better um, based on what, what we're, the evidence we're coming up with with zoo animals at the moment. And to, to go to the um, European Zoo Nutrition Conference is such a learning experience with, with all those three communities coming together um, and really thinking about what the next challenges are. And also what we talk about a lot lately is, is sustainability of diets, which you mentioned earlier, um, you know, particularly diets for fish eaters, you know, um, issues like palm oil in our, in our feeds, issues like soya in our feeds, um, whether we should be focusing on organic. Um, so we, and the practicalities, the systems you can put in place in a zoo, should we have a central kitchen so that we've got dedicated nutrition staff producing all the diets? You, you think in theory that gives you better control over what the animals are eating every day. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Um, what are the advantages of that sort of system? Who decides on diets and zoos? What's the procedures for actually establishing a diet and, and 
and changing a diet if you think you need to. So we talk about a lot of procedure things as well within zoos. And the, if anyone's interested in zoo nutrition, go along to those conferences because they're fantastic. And you've learned so much um, and you can become so inspired by how much change you can make through very simple differences. Yes, wonderful. And thanks so much for giving that, you know, broad background also, because, you know, like you said, it might be difficult to get a job in a zoo, but there are other jobs out there that could connect you to zoos and aquariums or sanctuaries or anywhere where there's animals. If you have a love for nutrition and you want to do something with wild animals, uh, there's lots of different types of jobs uh, that could allow you to still, um, you know, do something in that field, even though you can't directly work within a facility. So uh, that's very helpful. And uh, yeah, there's just so much to talk about, but I think, you know, we've had such a great chat and, um, you know, we like to conclude uh, podcasts often with, uh, with a nice animal story. And uh, I was wondering if you have one uh, that you want to share with us. Uh, in oh, of, you know, <laughs> on the spot here, but uh, no, that is really on the spot. <laughs> yeah, any animal or nutrition story or something, you know, fun that happened or touching that happened or yeah, oh, no. is welcome. Yeah, I, there are so many. I'm just trying to think. I, 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 do you know the funniest thing I think was um, nothing to do nutrition at all but way back when I first started at the zoo we started um, watching our baboon troops so we had about 80 baboons at the time on our baboon troop and um, with one of the, the placement students we started to to really learn to identify them all there was one keeper who was extremely good who helped us to, to identify them all but but mostly it was just the adult males that most people could tell apart um, and then we started to recognize the adult females. And these are Hamadryas baboons that live in a harem system. So one male had between sort of two and five females in their little harem at, at the time. Um, and that data has been collected for over 20 years now. It's a massive resource if anyone's interested in, in looking at a 20 year period of, of baboon tree behavioral data and estrus cycle data with the females. But I remember with with this student, we're, we're watching them because we could, we, because we'd learned to recognize all these females and whose harem they were supposed to be in. We were seeing a lot more sneaky matings going on. Um, and it was just so human in the way these sneaky matings would happen. So that, you know, the female would, and the male that, you know, she was planning a sneaky mating with would be sort of eyeing each other up and then they would go and disappear behind a rock. And it, and it was just, it was just like watching something really naughty. <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh my god they've gone off they've gone off what are they doing behind the rock um and it's just really funny the, their facial expressions on these baboons when they knew that they were going to go off and and, and have a, a sneaky mating outside of their harem was I used to have us in in it it, it just felt a really strange thing to be watching going on I, I remember that it made us laugh a lot um because you could sort of tell it was going to happen yeah, it's very funny right. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, that is just really funny. And I think I'm trying to remember, but I think I saw somebody, maybe it's Andrew Whiten, Professor Andrew Whiten, or some others published um, studies on this. And uh, they have these wonderful drawings of this, you know, one, you can see one primate kind of sitting and then, you know, but they kind of looked at point of view. And whether you know and so the, the the animals would know okay so if we're here then this dominant animal can't see us 
So yeah. we position ourselves, you know, in that way and kind of deceive. Yeah. You know, yeah. 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 So that's, that's so funny. Too. Yeah. Def definite deception going on, I think. Yeah. That's <laughs> so wonderful. And then the facial expressions. Yeah. Really great. Thank you so much, Amy, for coming on to this podcast and talking to us about, you know, just brief glimpses, because obviously it's a huge topic. We'll make sure to link to your research profile to the European, uh, European Nutrition Group and some other websites that people can explore more. And, and of course, they can reach out to you. Um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, Definitely. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on to Thank the Thank you podcast. very much. It's really good to talk about nutrition. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you. So that was the end of another wonderful podcast all about nutrition. Thank you so much, Amy. And of course, you know that the well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself. So you can be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And PAUSE is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being, science and practice, where you can get education and tools you need so you and your animals can flourish. You can follow the link in the podcast description to become a member today.